So it's my pleasure now to introduce our speaker for today, Drew Nobile, an associate professor of music theory in the School of Music and Dance at the University of Oregon. Drew specializes in the theory and analysis of popular music. He teaches courses and seminars on rock analysis, voice in popular song, tonal form, and uh, Schenkerian analysis. Prior to his appointment at UO, Nobile served on the music faculty at the University of Chicago and Brooklyn College. His first book, which I have here and I will pass around, Form as Harmony in Rock Music, was published in 2020 by Oxford UP and received the Society for Music Theory's Emerging Scholar Award, which honors an outstanding music theoretical book published within 10 years of the author's PhD. I should also say that the book uh, was uh, helped by a fellowship at the Oregon Humanities Center. Um, the book uh, offers a comprehensive theory of form for the classic rock and pop repertoire of the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And it has been, it's uh, forthcoming in an Italian transformation, uh, trans <laughs> translation and transformation. In addition to his book, Nobile has published articles and essays on various popular music topics, The Beatles, Stephen Sondheim, uh, Arnold Schoenberg, in publications including Music Theory Spectrum, the Journal of Music Theory, Music Theory Online, Popular Music, and in an, an edited collection on analyzing musicals from the University of Michigan Press. As a 2021-2022 Oregon Humanities Center Faculty Research Fellow, Nabil is working on his second book project titled Voicing Form in Rock and Pop, 1991-2020. This project is also being sponsor, uh, supported by uh, a National Endowment for the Humanities Grant. Please join me in welcoming Drew Nabil. I hope I can live up to that great introduction. Um, so, okay. tell me if something weird is happening with that because I can't see it. No, I'm fine. I like looking up. Um, so, I, I'm giving today basically a quick introduction to the ideas in the book that I'm working on called Voicing Form in Rock and Pop. 1991 to 2020, and I'll, I'll give you a warning that the examples that I'm talking about are not all from 1991 to 2020. I had to kind of bring some in because I don't have all the perfect examples yet um, from earlier, but I think you'll get the idea. Um, so I just want to start uh, with just a, a quick unpacking of the concept of musical form. So broadly speaking, a song's form refers to how it is organized in time. The most common way that we conceive a musical form is through a container metaphor. Um, maybe I will sit over there just so I can watch it Okay, so the container metaphor wherein a song is chopped up into temporal segments and each segment is placed into a formal container. So we might have a verse container, and a chorus container, and then we'll sprinkle some of the song into the verse container and some more of the song into the chorus container with the eventual goal of describing the whole song as a specific series of containers, right, for example. Once all the musical content has been distributed, the formal analysis is complete. More specifically, in this model, the series of containers is the form, and the content is simply the musical material that fills them. So container-based analysis is not at all a bad thing. In fact, it's an essential part of any analysis, formal or otherwise. But you can also see how relying too much on the container metaphor will limit the interpretive capacity of formal analysis. Um, what I've tried to do in all my work, not just in this book, also that one, um, is to treat form as a dynamic process where musical content creates relationships among sections and passages uh, that determine our experience of listening to or perfor performing the song. In my previous work, I focused on what many would consider the traditional aspects of musical structure, specifically melody, harmony, rhythm, one word, otherwise known as notes and chords. Um, in this project, I'm turning toward so-called secondary parameters. That's an old term from Leonard Meyer. Um, in particular, lyrics and timbre, or quality of sound. My main goal in focusing on these secondary parameters is to center the human element uh, in popular song. The idea is that when we hear a song, we don't just hear an autonomous musical work, but we hear someone singing the song. And how we interact with that singing voice 
is central to our experience of the song. There's been lots of work on voice in popular song, and without getting into the weeds, I'll simply summarize by saying that the identity of the singing voice is complex, as is our role in interpreting that identity. Broadly speaking, lyrics and timbre, or sound, are the two main sources of information we use to determine who is singing. Lyrics, of course, give us the clearest sense of what the song is about. They define a narrator, usually a first-person narrator, and situate that narrator in relation to other characters, etc. Sound is a much more complex site of musical meaning, but in general it serves to give the singer a physical presence both by implying certain bodily characteristics and by situating the singer in spatial relationships with other musical elements and with us, the listeners. So in this talk, I'm just going to look at how lyrical and timbral changes between verse and chorus sections affects how we come to understand who the singer is and what they are saying. The goal is to marry humanistic inquiry about voice and identity with music analytical ideas of form and structure. In so doing, I aim to break down the notion that there is an ontological separation between sound and structure. This opposition was central to postmodern musicology in the 90s and 2000s, but even while those scholars were arguing for the importance of studying sound, um, their focus on this opposition perpetuated the notion that a song is primarily defined by its notes and chords, which is a 19th century European idea that demands re-examination as we expand what counts as music worth studying into popular styles, vernacular styles, and others outside of the Western canon. All right, so let's look at lyrics. Now, many writers, when describing the difference between verses and choruses, will begin by noting that verses generally change their lyrics on subsequent iterations, whereas choruses generally uh, retain the same lyrics every time they appear. This feature is hardly a definition of verse and chorus. As David Temperley points out, we can usually identify what's a verse and what's a chorus before we know whether or not their lyrics repeat. But the general idea of changing verses and static choruses gives songs in verse-chorus form a particular poetic structure. That is, the unchanging lyrics in the chorus usually present the song's main lyrical message, while the various verses expand on that message with context or details. Walter Everett describes this general poetic framework as follows. Uh, quote, these passages of repeated text will sum up the song's main theme, which is illustrated in the changing texts of the verses as through different chapters of a story or different instances of an idea played out in the singer's experience. Similarly, Jocelyn Neal defines verses' texts as advancing the basic plot, with each subsequent verse moving to new situations, considerations, or information. An unchanging, unchanging chorus thus must continue to be relevant after the song's plot has progressed through additional verses. The most basic lyrical outline has each verse telling a different story, um, and these stories are united or unified by the theme presented in the chorus, basically a musical version of a This American Life episode. Um, so here's uh, Run DMC with You Be Illin from 1986. Um, the song's four verses tell stories about people acting strange, and the chorus repeats the title lyric to summarize the point of the stories. So here's the first verse about a guy who's confused about which fast food joint he's in. <laughs> Big Mac! You be 
So the other verses tell similar stories about people confused about what's going on around them. Here are the lyrics to verse 2, where we hear a cry of touchdown at a basketball game. Um, the other verses are similar. Verse 3's protagonist gets rejected at a party for being too drunk. And in verse 4, we see someone eat dog food for dinner. Um, and here's just another example. So this is Modest Mouse's Float On from 2004, when indie rock sold out. Um, each, <laughs> each lyrical couplet in the song's two verses tells a story of something seemingly bad happening in the first line, I backed my car into a cop car, but then it turning out okay in the second line. He just drove off. The chorus then repeats the uplifting line, and we'll all float on okay, cementing the theme of resilience in the face of hard times. seen in these two songs clearly delineates the verse chorus boundary. We've got narrative stories in the verses showing time passing and then general reflections in the chorus in which time stands still. In relation to the narrator, we also have a shift from an outward focus in the verse to an inward focus in the chorus. In the verses, the narrator describes what they see going on in the world. In Float On, the narrator recounts what happened to them, while in UB Illin, the narrator is mostly a non-participatory observer. But it's the same general idea of describing the outside world. Now, these stories are important in giving us some social context through which to identify the singing persona. In UB Illin, for instance, even though these stories aren't really about the narrator themselves, they still situate the narrator as a street-smart urbanite. Uh, for example, this is someone who tends to find themselves chilling in Kentucky Fried Chicken. Um, in the choruses of both songs, though, the narrator offers their own take on the events. The focus here isn't on the external goings-on, but on how the narrator feels about these events. So you be ill in, as a line, is a relatively simple summation, but that line represents the narrator passing judgment on these wacky characters, and importantly distancing themselves from the actions they're observing. Bringing in a little bit of the cultural context of the genre, the message seems to be something like, as an urban black youth from Queens, I see a lot of odd things around me, but I am not like that. <laughs> in Float On, the narrator explains his outlook on these various experiences. So he's had several bad moments that ended up fine, so he's decided not to worry too much. Even deeper, in this song, there's a pronoun shift to we in the chorus, we'll all float on, from the verses I and you, suggesting that you and me, you and me the listeners, and everyone else should take his experiences as instructive. Things worked out for him, so they probably will for us too. So song lyrics can also situate a song's various characters in relation to one another. Most popular songs are sung in the first person, making the singer persona narrator the song's protagonist, or at least a main character in the narrative. Um, many songs also involve a second character, a love interest, an ex, a rival, etc. And that second character may be referred to in the third person, <coughs> she told me her name was Billie Jean, or in the second person, you make me feel like a natural woman. An interesting and not uncommon pattern is for the address to shift from third to second person over verse and chorus. That is, the character that's, say, she in the verses becomes you in the choruses, suggesting that the narrator has shifted from addressing a third party, us, the listeners, I suppose, uh, to speaking directly to the other character. Uh, Matthew Bailey Shea cites this shift as an example of what he calls the distant to intimate template 
essentially we have the relationship between the two characters as, as distant when it's in the third person, but more intimate when in the second person. This shift really should be confusing, but it isn't, probably because the formal division between verse and chorus facilitates such narrative shifts. Oh, that was supposed to come first. Um, okay, in Bismarck's Just a Friend, the rapt verses tell a song-long story of a dishonest love interest, and the famously badly sung choruses summarize the theme while also addressing the love interest as you. Have you ever met a girl that you tried to date? But a year to make love, she wanted you to wait. Let me tell you a story of my situation. I was talking to this girl from the U.S. nation. The way that I met her was on tour at a concert. She had long hair and a short miniskirt. I just got on stage dripping pouring with sweat. I was well on the same. So there's also a shift here from the past tense to the present tense. So it's almost like we dive into the story for the choruses. The narrator's tone shifts to a more desperate lament, suggesting that in the chorus we're hearing him when the scars are brand new, as opposed to the detached storytelling of the verses, when presumably the story is well in the past. Uh, here's another one. Uh, this is Bikini Kill's Riot Girl punk anthem Rebel Girl which begins as if the narrator is gossiping about a social misfit delivered in Kathleen Hanna's best mean girl voice. But after saying, I think I want to be her best friend, the narrator goes right up to the girl and declares in the second person, you are the queen of my world. What? shift embodies the punk ethos of nonconformity and empowerment. Less commonly, uh, songs will actually shift the narrator from verse to chorus. So in other words, the eye of the lyrics is a different character in the two sections. Often this involves uh, the song's protagonist going from being the eye of the lyrics in the verse to the you of the lyrics in the chorus. Um, Billy Joel's Piano Man is my favorite example of this shift. I know this is before my, 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 uh, my time here, but uh, this is, it's, a, it's a good example. Um, the verses are told from the perspective of a barroom musician who describes his interactions with and observations of the various patrons around him. In the choruses, though, it's the patrons who are singing to the Billy Joel persona, pleading with him to sing for them so they can briefly forget their troubles. It's nine o'clock on a Saturday. The regular crowd shuffles in. There's an old man sitting next to me, making love to his tonic and gin. Sing us a song, you're the piano man. Sing us a song tonight. We're on. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right, there's really um, so much more to say about how lyrics sync up with the form to give the singer a narrative voice. Um, and that's basically the subject of my book's second chapter. But now I want to move on to discuss timbre. As I said earlier, there are two main ways timbre affects our perception of the singing persona's identity. The vocal sound gives us a sense of the singer's internal state, both physical and emotional, and the way that vocal sound is positioned in the concept, context of the overall recording places the singer in a spatial relationship within a sonic environment. So today I'm going to just focus on the second of these, the spatial effects of timbre and texture. There's been lots of work 
Yeah, there we go. There has been lots of work on sonic space, that is how recorded sound creates the illusion of spatial relationships. Um, my discussion draws heavily on Alan Moore's concept of what he calls the persona environment relationship, which builds on concepts from Eric Clark and Edward T. Cohn. I also engaged with Michel Duguay's recent CUNY dissertation called Gendering the Virtual Space. The premise of these sources, which I retain here, is that the overall sonic texture creates a metaphorical space, which Clark and Duguay call it the virtual space, Moore calls it the sound box, and the timbre and production of individual elements places those elements within that space. In particular, the voice is representative of the song persona narrator subject, and everything else represents that persona's surrounding environment. If we combine this notion of sonic space with formal analysis, we can begin to see how timbral changes across formal sections can signify the persona moving through space and interacting with their surroundings. Let's, oh, I think that was also supposed to come first. Let's start with a well-known example. This is Nirvana's Smells Like Teen Spirit from 1991, the song that kicked off the 90s grunge explosion and whose effects still ripple through today's music. In a second, I'll play the first cycle of verse, pre-chorus, and chorus, and you'll notice right away a kind of terraced textural process, where the verse is sparse and quiet, the pre-chorus is at a mid-range, and the chorus is the loudest. We can visualize this trajectory with a spectrogram. So this is a graph of the sound where the vertical axis is frequency, right? High pitch at the top, low pitch at the bottom. The um, horizontal axis is time. And then there's kind of a color-based Z axis where uh, representing amplitude. So brighter colors are louder than darker colors. Um, so when you have something like in the chorus where you've got a lot of bright colors all the way up, that means we have loud sounds at all ranges of the frequency, whereas you can see in the verse, there's a lot of dark space, so not a lot of sound there. Um, okay, so let's listen. <laughs> So the sonic buildup is pretty obvious, and Nirvana is actually kind of known for introducing this kind of terraced texture to the rock and pop mainstream. But if we look at the how the vocal track interacts with the accompanimental buildup, we can start to see a narrative unfolding. In the verse, uh, where Co uh, when Cobain's voice has little sonic competition, he's able to sing with characteristic closed mouth nonchalance and still be the center of our attention. The relationship is visible here in the spectrogram detail where the frequency bands of Cobain's voices, or the kind of curvy lines, um, are, uh, they appear as curvy white lines within a mostly dark background. It's like not playing sometimes. In the pre-chorus, though, the intensifying accompaniment begins to engulf the vocal sound, which is itself blurred by overdubbing and phaser effects. Here you can see the vocal bands blending into a more colorful background in this section, as it becomes more difficult to pick out the voice amid the thickening texture. As the accompaniment threatens to swallow Cobain up entirely, he breaks through with the chorus's scream singing, cutting across the sonically saturated environment to command the attention of anyone within earshot. 
Here, despite a sea of bright colors in the background, the vocal bands are clearly visible in bright white, showing Cobain rising above the thick chorus texture. What we can perceive, then, is this masculine subject transcending a threatening environment to assert his sonic dominance over everything the chorus texture can throw at him. With nearly incomprehensible lyrics, even if you can't understand what Cobain is singing, it still doesn't make any sense, the sonic trajectory gets to the core of Gen X's white male teen angst. Here's another one. Uh, this is Girl in Red's Serotonin, written in 2020 in the midst of early stage COVID. The song explores the narrator's mental health struggles, painting a detailed picture of depression, thoughts of self-harm, and the deadening effects of antidepressant medication. Let's listen to a verse and chorus and pay attention to the timbral differences between the two sections in both the vocal sound and the accompaniment. focus on a couple. Um, the voice is produced with both reverb and distortion, but not at the same time. In the verse, the voice is distorted with basically no reverb. I get intrusive thoughts like cutting my hands off like jumping in front of a bus like how do I make the stop when it... And in the chorus, it has tons of reverb, but not really any distortion. The accompaniment in the verse has only low frequencies, except for the snare hits, and some periods of silence. You can't really hear the low frequencies, right? Um, but they're there. Um, and then the accompaniment in the chorus, the full pitch spectrum is heard constantly. So we have this sense in the verse of an empty space filled with a very close but fuzzy persona. Coupled with the lyrics, which describe the persona's inner thoughts, we could, receive, could perceive this space to represent the inside of her mind. I got intrusive thoughts like cutting my hands off like... In the chorus, then, we shoot out to the external world. The persona's heavily reverbed voice is far away, and the surrounding environment nearly engulfs the voice's sound with its spectral saturation, reflecting the persona's feelings of overwhelm and distance. So, timbre and production don't only place the singer in a spatial relationship to their environment, they also can place the singer in a spatial relationship to us, the listeners. Um, Alan Moore, in his 2012 book Song Means, adapts the psychological concept of proxemics to the analysis of recorded song. Proxemics, in short, is the study of distances between individuals in interaction. Moore recognizes four general proxemic zones in pop songs articulated by both the persona's vocal delivery and the textural relationship between voice and accompaniment. In the intimate zone, we perceive the persona to be right next to our ears. The vocal delivery is in a close-range whisper or soft singing style with the purest possible production, no reverb, etc., and the voice is set in front of the environment with minimal and or distant accompaniment. Next, we have the personal zone, where the persona is at a normal two-person conversational distance, and the social zone, where the persona 
uh, is in the same room as us, but possibly addressing a small group of people. In each of these zones, the accompaniment becomes more active and less differentiated from the vocals, and the vocal delivery becomes louder and more effective. Effective, like more effects. Finally, we have the public zone, where the song persona is far away from the listener and addressing a large group of people, the proverbial shouting from a rooftop zone. Here, the vocal line becomes engulfed by a sonically saturated environment. The persona shouts or belts at the top of their lungs, and all textural layers involve significant production effects, especially distortion and reverb. In many verse chorus songs, probably most of them, the verse is set in a closer proxemic zone than the chorus. With the singer seemingly farther away from us in the chorus, that section can elevate the song's message to a public communal statement. In Alanis Morissette's 1995 breakout hit, You Oughta Know, her narrator's gradual proxemic distancing turns this breakup lament into a communal power statement. The song's two-part verse plus pre-chorus and chorus take us through all four zones. As Morissette's song persona moves farther away, she simultaneously sheds various layers of emotional inhibition, by the end yelling out her rawest feelings to anyone within earshot. So here we go. I want you to lyrics are addressed to an ex-lover who left the protagonist for another woman. When Morissette sings in the intimate zone, she's feigning politeness, focusing what she's saying on the addressee. As Laurie Burns describes it, the intimate sonic environment, quote, suggests a hesitant approach to her ex-lover, signifying his sexual power over her, end quote. As Morissette moves into the personal and social zones, she gets a little snarky and spiteful, shifting her focus to her effect on the addressee. Basically, I hope you feel like a bad person for what you did to me. To Burns, this move, quote, is a signal that this narrator is not merely addressing a personal situation, but is speaking for a larger community. Finally, the chorus in the public zone is entirely focused on the narrator, specifically her own emotional state after the messy breakup. Though the text ostensibly reflects a direct address to her ex-lover, she is now speaking for and to a larger community, elevating this breakup story in a sort of personal as political way to an anthem of resistance to male sexual dominance. That's the end. Uh, well, I have a conclusion. I didn't mean that's the end. That's the end of that. <laughs> I have a little thing. Okay, we're coming to the zone. By way of conclusion, <laughs> I want to come back to the concept of musical structure. Um, musical structure, yes. The field of music theory was arguably founded on the idea of musical structure as a primary target of inquiry. Music theory, as you may know, is doing a lot of self-examination these days, and alongside reevaluating our central repertoire and our scholarly history, we're also taking a hard look at our established methodologies. In particular, we've seen how structural analysis is not the apolitical objective methodology some practitioners wish it were, but in fact carries with it a host of assumptions, biases, and prejudices. 
Now, musicologists have been saying this for a while, going back to at least the late 80s postmodern wave, as I talked about before, but much of the debate since then has focused really on whether or not we should engage in structural analysis. But what hasn't happened, and what I hope to contribute to with this project, is a re-evaluation of what counts as musical structure. A theory of form, as I've said, is ultimately a theory of how music is organized in time. Yes, notes, chords, and melodies can be important parts of that organization, but so can the relationships between characters in the text, or the timbral placement of singing personas in relation to their environments, etc. In other words, a theory of form is capable of bringing together so-called primary and secondary parameters. And it can even break down the notion that there is any meaningful distinction between primary and secondary parameters to begin with. The broader point is that in popular styles, um, singers can be seen not only as communicating with their voice, not only emoting with their voice, but in fact composing with their voice. Thank you. Thanks, Drew. Uh, questions for Drew? Well, you hinted at this question, but I don't think you addressed it directly when you re referred to recorded. And all of your examples, if I'm not mistaken, refer to music which has been put through a recording process. Mm -hmm. And I guess my question is, how much of musical analysis in general, like the musicology, the background that you're talking about, is based upon, shall we say, pre-recorded history? That's kind of a pun. Obviously, there was a popular song, if not rock, long before there was recorded music. So I guess that is a, a, a two questions. One is, uh, how much of this methodology is based upon pre-recorded music, and what has been the effect of the recording process on the entire talk that you've just given? In other words, how has recorded music affected this analysis? Right, so this, this is kind of the, the, the big issue is that when you think about the, the concept of the musical work mm -hmm. in classical music, the, the mm -hmm. musical work was disseminated through a written score. And right. so this has kind of been the text, right? The right. text that we analyze is the musical score. And that has, was kind of what happened was we started analyzing the things that are in the score Mm -hmm. uh, because they're there, yes. and um, yeah. at, at the expense of things that are not showable in, in the score. And that like I think timbre, is, for example. Like timbre, yeah. right, or you know, performance, performance mm -hmm. practice, or mm -hmm. you know, all those kinds of things. And that is essentially, I don't know if we need that, that is essentially what the kind of postmodernists were saying, is that mm -hmm. like this focus on the score, and you know, this goes back to Lydia Gurr's work concept, right? the idea that there is this, this kind of... Uh, this, this work that is uh, contained in the score and that kind of doesn't have a human element to it is this autonomous entity um, and we can look at these structural features. That is what the postmodernists were kind of trying to push back against mm -hmm. and say actually there's this whole other side of music that you silly music theorists are not focusing mm -hmm. on. Um, and, and you should focus on that uh, more because you can't kind of look at it in, in the absence of social context. Um, and then, you know, so, but, but then you're, you're right, 20th century, we have recordings, and in popular music, we don't have a score as a text, we have a recording as a text. And so when we are going to analyze the recording as a text, we can actually do a lot of those things that the, um, the critics want us to do but at w with examining the, the text, not just by kind of looking at social context and what people said about how people were performing and what mm -hmm. happened at this performance, right? You can actually look at the text. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, uh, that's essentially where, where we are. Um, what a lot of music theorists, including me in the past, have, have done is actually treated the popular music recording text as 
a classical written text. We mm -hmm. transcribe it, we put it in notation, and then we talk about the notes and chords, right? So we right. kind of, we didn't, because we don't have a framework, we didn't, music mm -hmm. theory didn't have a framework for discussing those secondary parameters in, in any kind of systematic way. And we love systems as music theorists, right? So um, this, is, this is kind of where we are as a field. Mm -hmm. um, and like I said, what, what I am trying to do is, is a little bit bridge that gap because oh. there's, there's a lot of music theorists, Zach is one of them, he's a musicologist, but <laughs> kind of just really looking at, looking at, at timbre and sound, um, starting to really get into that systematizing, what, is it, what does it all mean? You know, uh, Zach does the, more of the cognition part of it. You do everything, right? Um, but uh, and Madison uh, also kind of this kind of thing vocal vocal timbre, but bridging that gap between this sort of um, these new methodologies based on this recorded text and some of the earlier concepts of musical structure. That's where I'm saying that's where we can really get into the next phase of uh, music scholarship is, is is by bringing those two together, not kind of throwing out um, this idea that musical structure must be. Uh, kind of wedded to this 19th century European aesthetic value system, um, but actually can be brought into this the, um, uh, this kind of 21st century vernacular popular non-Western uh, world. Thank you. Yeah? Um, if I go to a master class performance, I, I hear the kinds of things that you're talking about in terms of timbre um, as suggestions to the performers about ways to interpret a piece of something that will be recorded as classical on a piece mm -hmm. of paper. So it seems like as time has, all along, there has been this aspect of a piece of music that in addition to it being written down, it also has some performance suggestions between student and performer. So that this basket of timbre and sound environment and stuff has always been part of that, of a piece of music. So then I'm, my question, I guess, is there seems to be a shift in the acknowledgement of that as being an essential piece of the piece of music as rather than a, a secondary after it's written, then you perform it this way. Mm -hmm. So uh, is there some place, 1980 or something, that there was a shift in the way music is as sort of a generic shift in the way we're looking at do you understand my question? I do. I think I do understand your question. And I think that there's that it, it, there's still an important difference in the the way that I mean, yeah, absolutely. Performance practice was always about these very minute, like timbral details. I mean, I, you know, I'm a violinist. I know about like try to get some, you know, weird shimmer. I mean, it's all this vague tone. But but the 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 goal in the kind of a, a classical performance practice way, you know, classical master classes, is in getting a sort of correct sound for the text, right? You ha you're, you're performing someone else's music and you are trying to do it in an appropriate way. And the notion of what is correct has changed, you know, performance practices, practices as a dynamic uh, field. But um, this idea that, that in, in, in doing it, you're actually, uh, for the most part, erasing yourself and kind of being a window between the audience and the, the text. Mm -hmm. That is an oversimplification, but I think can, can be a simplification of, of the classical performance practice idea of timbre. Um, in here, uh, in recorded sound, and, I, and I, this is, must have been true in kind of vernacular uh, pre-recorded music as well, is that the performer is actually, is part of the work. Right, that's that's kind of this this thing is that the work does not exist outside of how the performance is happening, and um, so how the, the singer is singing it, um, how the producer placed all of these things, is uh, not just an interpretation of some uh, arrangement of notes and chords that cognitively was prior to the actual recording, but but now is in fact the the work itself. Or I mean, I guess I, what I'm really saying is that the the work itself is not. Is not a concept that I want to. I want to. I want to uh, separate from from really anything else. Is that kind of get no, to that you? Was, that was great, and, and I'm not going to ask you, but I can see that a shift in uh, the individual's sense of him or herself, their self, in the world, um, empowers the creation of uh, composed your uh, self composition. 
and also performance in other people's world. There's the interjection of yourself into it as sort of a social shift in as the decades have gone on. And it's a it's a really central part of popular song going back to the early twentieth century. I mean, you know, people talk about just kind of the the microphone as the moment when kind of popular singing became possible, right? And the crooning in the thirties, right? And Frank Sinatra. This is now Frank Sinatra did not write his own music, but Frank Sinatra. You 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 don't listen to Frank Sinatra singing a song and say, oh, I like that song. You you say, oh, I like Frank Sinatra. <laughs> you know, singing that song. So. He is never absent from the process, and so that's, I mean, that's a whole different discussion, but actually that, that is a, an important uh, tradition in, in um, popular music is cover songs and, and just performances of other songs where you, the singer, uh, mostly the singer, but also the band, um, are kind of recomposing the song in some way by, by inserting yourself as not just an interpreter of the song, but actually you're, you're creating something new in that. Um, there's a, uh, Lori Burns has a really great article on music theory online about um, Tori Amos's cover of Strange Fruit by, uh, yeah, Billie Holiday. Um, and uh, it's, it's really interesting how that, I mean, with the racial dynamics and everything with that, um, how that plays in. And it's, just, it's kind of like it's impossible to cover a song in popular music without kind of recontextualizing how we understand the singing persona and all these identities. I mean, then there's like, you know, cover bands like the Fab Faux who are like trying to sound as much like the Beatles as possible. <laughs> but that's, that's a different issue. <laughs> yeah. I have a question. Um, so I was wondering about uh, whether, I mean, just to, uh, referring to the humanistic side of this work, which is you know, the way that you merge them together is part of what's so exciting about your work generally and this project in particular. Um, I I mean, of course, I can't help thinking about things like, you know, opera, the way that there's, the, when you were talking about the text and these kind of moments of commentary or it's almost like the Greek chorus or something like commenting on mm -hmm. what's going on or having this kind of like perspective shift. And so there are other forms of dramaturgy, it strikes me, um, which could be total anachronisms in a project like this. But then I was thinking, okay, what would be a not anachronistic way to look at the fact that, you know, theater and dramaturgy always involve these kinds of interplay of these different perspective shifts? And I was wondering if things like sort of a theatrical medium versus a cinematic medium are thinking about the interplay of these different media um, could be another model for looking at these. Like, you know, for example, The Piano Man, that's like a cinema cut mm -hmm. in a sense. Um, you know, you can imagine cutting to the person singing, you know, saying the thing uh, versus like the, the chorus, oh, isn't that great? Or sort of like reaction, reflection, this kind of thing. Um, I mean, Greek chorus, not this genre. Yeah, yeah. Anyways, I, I don't know if that could play in or should play in. And then that led me to a secondary question, which is about music videos. Because then, as long as you oh, yeah. start to, if you start tiptoeing into the world of the cinema, um, the way that all of the different formal things that you're going to be looking at in this book are either supported by or undercut by or sort of, you know, the way that that medium interfaces with what you're looking at could be really fertile and exciting. So I was just wondering about... Oh, totally. Yeah. I might, I might, I might purposely forget about the music video part of your question. Yeah, maybe I'll do it. Um, <laughs> other people, Lori Burns, whom I just have mentioned a lot, is uh, working a lot on, on kind of multimedia projects because I mean, there's a lot of popular music that not only has music videos but is kind of presented as a multimedia um, uh, artwork. You know that the, that the video. In fact, my last chapter is on Beyonce's Lemonade, which is one of those, so I'm going to have to be talking about that in there. So, um, But yeah, I mean, you know, the cinematic uh, kind of metaphor, I mean, all of this is the, just the idea that, that talking about sound is really hard. And um, getting to, to timbre, uh, get, getting to ways of describing timbre, this is basically your whole point in everything you do, is that we need to use metaphors that are more tangible. Right to talk about sand, 
a sound. Um, and I, I often am picturing kind of a cinematic uh, situation. I mean, this, this proxemic distancing yeah. Um, is just like, you know, it's, it's panning out. And I think I totally agree with, um, you know, the piano man. It's like, it's a different, I mean, the uh, narrative theorists talk about focalization. I think English people could talk about that more, more than me, but, but that it's that, um, and I think about that a lot, this kind of, um, when you, you, you have a kind of narrator, uh, but then you, you just are, peeking at different characters, even though the narrator is, is constant. And that's, that's this, this complicated thing about who, who the, the person singing is always the narrator. And when the eye changes, you still have the persona who is singing, so you have these kind of implied quotation marks. Um, so it's, it's very interesting to kind of think about how that is all, uh, all playing out. Um, so yeah, what else did you say? You said something about opera. <laughs> well, well not, not because I feel opera must or even should be mentioned, it would be anachronistic, but just uh, there's a, there are, I guess there could be <clears throat> just ways of thinking about it as dramaturgy too. Yeah. The flow of drama, especially in these kind of ballad like songs that are telling, doing storytelling. And, yeah, I mean, the torch song is kind of the typical, like, yeah. you, you, st you start. I mean, it's it's th this process. Other than by the end, you're just like, and <laughs> right, you know. Um, so, uh, but yeah, I mean, you can you can picture it staged, and in fact, it often is staged. I mean, this is a whole other thing. You talk about music videos, which these days tends to be how most people actually listen to music is on YouTube. Um, and then you also have performances of the song, which are uh, you know sometimes performances are meant to be more dynamic, but for the most part, pop, pop artists usually are just using the recorded track and uh, you know, presenting it, but the stage, it's got dancers, you've got different things that happen. Um, and sometimes there's even little things acted out. I mean, Taylor Swift does this all, all the time with her kind of story uh, songs where there's actually uh, her or sometimes actors are actually giving a little skit <laughs> in their performance, right? So it can really affect the way that we understand all of this. And I think I do try to avoid the, you know, bringing in external uh, things to the audio because for the most part, the, the, this is what happened first. This was kind of like the creation of the product and then the music videos until you get into the really the 2010s. Mm -hmm. Music videos are often directed by someone unrelated to the artist. Oh, okay. uh, totally, uh, sometimes I watch a music video and I'm like, this, this person, did not understand what was going on in this, in this song. And so sometimes, you know, I think you can over-interpret the significance of, of music, uh, you know, directorial decisions. Um, but in something like Beyonce's Lemonade, you can't ignore that because this was, you know, intended to be part of the narrative and you're not supposed to just listen to the album and not, not watch the, the video. So. Cool. Thank you. It's one of those things where, yeah, all of that is really important and, like, you know, but also terrifying <laughs> to try to talk about all these things. I mean, that's, I think, why it's so hard to write about um, art, is that there's... Well, and yeah, as long as you start pushing on the humanistic dimension of it to just, it, there's a freedom to it, too, that it can, you can make whatever connections you find serve your right, project yeah. best. <laughs> you know. Yeah. So there's so interesting, exciting exploration. For sure. Yeah, there. Super quick question. What do you think would be a good alternate metaphor to the container in understanding form? If we sort of think of form as this dynamic process that about how it contributes really ultimately to experience and there's a sort of flow to it, how, how, how would you conceptualize that so that we might have some kind of toolbox conceptually to bring into our classrooms to help explain form that isn't the container? Uh, the journey metaphor is the most mm -hmm. common one. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. yeah, this is, Pounty Burstein has a new book on uh, Gallant, uh, form for, yeah. for you know pre, pre, kind of pre-classical, but that's ultimately his his point, and he brings up the container metaphor yeah. is kind of what dominates twentieth and twenty-first century theories of musical form, but mm. contemporary theories for the Gallant era in the eighteenth century m relied much more on this idea of the journey. Mm -hmm. So he yeah. is talking about how we can kind of understand this music much uh, much better if we incorporate journey metaphors into our current understanding of form. I think it's a little complicated because there's still, I mean, he's still kind of wedded to the work concept. Um, even though, like, like Lydia Gurr and others say, the work concept maybe shouldn't be retrofitted to the 18th century. That's really a 19th century idea. 
um, but this idea that, that these are musical works and that the, it's like who is going on the journey is the, is the big question and yeah. that's and it's sort of like well no one but us <laughs> us you know is it the, the composer maybe is taking us on the journey along yeah. in, the, in the but the idea that they're actually that this this human is there saying something to us about themselves mm-hmm. um, there's a journey but there's also a I don't know yeah then there's another one where it's just um, I don't know. Yeah, maybe. I, I like that a lot. I think there could be more. Yeah, mm-hmm. but thanks for that question. Yeah. yeah. yeah and uh, how how would this work uh, for um, <coughs> songs from artists uh, where um, <coughs> they write songs that um, break away from the verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, um, structure? So that's a great question. Um, and yeah, I'm, and I'm talking bands like um, Yes or um, yeah, okay, Dream Theater. Right. Uh, right. So when you I mean you have expansive forms, but you, you can you can do the same kind of methodology. I mean you know. I focus just on verse chorus because that's the most common, especially after the '90s. Um, but um, you, when you have lots of songs that just have their own kind of formal structures that don't necessarily engage with uh, paradigmatic structures, you still have uh, sections, you know, groupings like this happens here, this happens here. What is the difference? How does this create relationships? And in fact, when you don't have a kind of paradigm to fall back on how those sections relate to one another becomes more centrally, uh, centrally our focus, right? We, we, we can be like, well, well there's, this thing is happening and that is putting this spin on what happened before. I don't really know where we're going or where we came from and that, mm-hmm. that, that can start telling a lo- longer narrative. You can also ask that question about uh, artists like jam bands who uh, are very improvisatory and that there isn't this kind of a recorded text. This is actually one of my dissertation advisees, uh, Michael Cebulski, is writing his dissertation on this topic. How do you conceive a form when there really isn't one version of the song? Um, and that is, it's, it, the answer is, uh, so, um, yeah, I mean, a, a lot of these, these, these deeper things, I kind of tend to, to start with, let's just stick with the, the kind of the, the most normal songs, because there's already a lot to talk, excuse me, to talk about in there, and then we can kind of take that methodology and see how that, how that works when we, when we put it on other harder things. Yeah. Um, I have like a million questions, but I'll ask this one. Um, uh, voicing form in rock and pop. Yeah. So you mentioned Frank Sinatra. Pop music comes a long way in advance of rock music. And um, rock music comes in advance of 1990. Yes. So why 1991 to the present? Why, why is that the temporal parameter that you look at here? Uh, it's, it's a great question. Uh, the, the, the deflective answer is that <laughs> 91 is when my first book stops. So yeah. <laughs> going on. No, no, I'm asking you to, to do the post Do the real explanation. <laughs> so, uh, well, it's most, it, there it was a big thing that happened in 91. A lot of things happened in the 90s. Um, and, um, uh, you know, a couple of the, the stylistic shifts, uh, basically hip-hop, uh, and grunge music uh, took over. I mean, this was the moment. It was the, the, the January 7th Billboard chart, January 7th, 1992 Billboard chart. Nirvana Smells Like Teen Spirit jumped over Michael Jackson's Black or White, and this was the moment. Right? Michael Jackson has been dethroned by these like grungy, um, you know, Seattleites. Um, uh, and and hip hop. Uh, kind of breaks through. I mean, it had its sort of moments in the spotlight, in the national spotlight that, that broke out of the kind of niche, the urban black uh, market. But this happened with mostly Dr. Dre's The Chronic in 1992. That was the first big multi-platinum um, hip-hop album. You know, other things, like, for example, the, the Billboard charts changed their methodology in 1991 from, uh, basically, they used to just call up record store, exec- or record store workers and say, hey, um, what are you selling? And they would just say, oh, uh, music by white men, basically. They, they would oversell what, you know, what that was happening. They moved to a sound scan where they would just automatically get what was being scanned in those record stores and automatically report what was being played on uh, radio stations. And that also made everyone realize that hip-hop in country <laughs> was actually a lot larger uh, segment of the market. The other thing is all the record stores that they were calling were in New York and L.A., 
Um, so that's where country music was undersold. Um, and then, I mean, big thing was just the digital uh, digital recording tools. Um, the, uh, that, that happened a little bit later in the 90s, but really moving away. I mean, the CDs were starting to come out in the, in the late 80s. Digital audio workstations were... But anyway, there's a lot of other things. And then, of course, there was the music business shakeup that happened with Napster. Mm. Um, I mean, the CDs happened with Napster, and then there was the iTunes store, and then there was streaming. I mean, it's just the, the kind of the landscape from 91 to, to 2020 is just a, it's an entirely different uh, way of making popular music mm. than in the previous 30 years. And the previous 30 years was sort of like, I mean, my first book started in 1963. So before that, you could say it was a lot of professional songwriters in, in factories giving things out to, you know, even even in the early rock era, that was generally happening. But you had a relatively consistent 30-ish year period there. Things really got shaken up in the 90s, relatively consistent. I think that in maybe in 10 years, we might realize that around 2010, something shifted pretty seriously. So, um, but I really wanted to talk about Beyonce's lemonade, so I wanted so, to <laughs> so, so, but you, you answered my question in um, an institutional way. Yeah. You, you talked about changes to the industry of popular music. Mm. You did, and I'm curious why that temporal period in terms of the formal questions that you're yeah. interested in. Well, actually, it's, it's not so much that the, well, the formal, uh, in terms of the container-based forms, didn't changed that much mm -hmm. in the early 90s. The, the timbral things were really changed by the digital uh, the, the kind of uh, ability to use digital tools. Mm -hmm. um, but also just, just musical style. The, the, the grunge and hip hop hitting, I mean, there were a lot of other hits, right? Punk music hit in the late 70s, right? Mm -hmm. you know, metal hit the mainstream mm -hmm. in 1983. I mean, all these kinds of things happened and then sort of re reverted. But th that didn't happen with this one. This this exploded. I mean, it was you know Gen X and then the millennials. You know, we kind of showed up and, and started buying <laughs> CDs differently. I mean, you know, uh, so uh, it really didn't it didn't go back. I mean, there was there was still metal music. Michael Jackson kept kept making music, right? The Rolling Stones kept making music, but in terms of sort of where what we perceived as the center of mainstream rock and pop was, it never went back to the way it was in 1989-1990. Um, so, I mean, as, as much as there can be kind of a, a, a seismic shift, that's what happened in, in 1991 and also 1963-64 with the Beatles. And you, you, you mentioned that, that uh, the techniques for recording changed so that the sounds that people were hearing yeah. were changed too, but right. there's also things about the sound of hip-hop singing and the sound of grunge singing, mm -hmm. right? So say a little bit about those things that are different from what comes before that. Okay, so well, grunge and alternative rock is you know really started as this kind of there's this white male sound, which it's a, it's a post-punk sound. I mean, it's it comes from from that ethos, but uh, it has a lot of amateurism, right? You're not supposed to be a good singer. You're not. I mean, compare that to what you were hearing in the late '80s with like Guns N' Roses, um, with this just like virtuosic like belting like you know stuff that's going on it was the the rejection of that I mean Nirvana doesn't even open his mouth right that's this idea is like I'm kind of high and like my hair is long um, and then of course hip-hop you know hip-hop revolutionized not only the vocal sound just you know with with rap but um, just the way that lyrics are performed rhythmically and you know, there's a lot of music that isn't rap, but is delivered in a way that is really influenced by rap. And that, I mean, that these days, you got. This is actually what I'm going to talk about a lot in Beyonce. I mean, Beyonce doesn't almost ever do something that we could say is rap, but most of the way that she sings uh, is uh, really has a hip hop flow to it, right? There's, she's not doing what, say, Madonna was doing in terms of melodic um, uh, ornamentation. So that's Thanks. the beginning of that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that is uh, an interesting comment, uh, particularly about the rhythm, because in the sort of alternative world of classical music, it's often said that that's the contribution of the 20th century and the 21st century. In other words, rhythm 
is an element which is very primitive, but it's rediscovered by the classical music world in the 20th century. And I guess the most uh, striking example of that in terms of uh, cause celeb was uh, Stravinsky's uh, music, mm -hmm. Rite of Spring, uh, Firebird, etc., where rhythm became the essential message of the piece. I mean, there were other sort of containers, there were notes, there were scores, and so forth, but the rhythm became the sort of primary component. Yeah, I mean, you referred to rhythm as primitive, and I think this is, uh, you know, just, this is this issue of the, the 19th century European uh, aesthetic value system mm -hmm. as really minimizing the body and right. maximizing the intellect, right? This mm -hmm. is, and this is, you know, going, going kind of like what Theodore Adorno was saying in the, <laughs> in the, the, the 30s and 40s, right, was um, this idea that that kind of uh, primal body movement dancing, you know, mm -hmm. systems are just for the masses and, and mm -hmm. are, are, are bad and we shouldn't focus on that. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I do agree that, yes, you know, classical music, this kind of Western art music, had a, a renewed, I don't know if... I don't know if I would I would agree that there was like rhythm wasn't important and then became important, but mm -hmm. at least that you know started exploring. Mm. I mean, in the same way that they did with pitch, right? You know, yeah. exploring things. But um, I think that 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 the idea that that rhythm is something that was ignored in the past is more a critical uh, um, mm. or, or an, a, a result of, of criticism and, and and writing and philosophy rather than actual musical practice. Um, and, you know, I mean, this idea that, yeah, like, uh, you know, African music is rhythmic, so therefore it's, like, bad, you know, yeah. has, this, <laughs> has that kind of, uh, all of the dynamics that, that we talk about in there. So I think that, 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 that uh, there's a lot more to it than, than just this, like, oh, classical music discovered rhythm. And <laughs> well, yeah, century. I mean, you couldn't say that Beethoven lacked rhythm. I no. mean, the Seventh Symphony, I mean, if he wrote nothing else. Yeah, there, there's also the you know <coughs> main motif from his fifth, <laughs> right? And and, and, and Bartok also um, <coughs> incorporated a bunch of uh, rhythmic stuff into his compositions as well. So there's pause. A couple of people have left. Let's t take a moment to thank uh, Drew again. And if people want to keep talking, they're welcome. To